If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Hebrews tonight, chapter 7. Thank you so much for that great music. Both of those songs were wonderful and very timely. Tonight's message, I believe, is also quite timely. We are continuing a message throughout chapter 7. We are tracing an argument that the writer of Hebrews is giving to his audience who are struggling with their faith about how sufficient that the Lord Jesus is. And tonight we're looking at and continuing our study on this great high priest, the fact that what Jesus did because of his authority, the work that he did as a high priest was not only sufficient for all time, but continues on just as it always has been. I think it's quite interesting that we are looking at a text where the word or at least the theme of authority is so prevalent because as we think about those men and women, the soldiers who died on fields of battle and even died here at home to protect our freedom, they did so because they were ordered to. They were commanded to go. You can say that they, that they died not just for the sake of freedom, but they died because someone in a higher authority commanded them to go. So tonight we're going to take the argument one step further. Not only is Melchizedek this great high priest who was greater than Aaron, we looked at that last week, but Melchizedek has actually replaced Aaron. That the priesthood that Jesus emulates, remember Jesus being of the order of Melchizedek, that priesthood is actually greater and has also completely replaced that lineage or that priesthood of Aaron. Tonight is going to be very much a teaching time. I'm going to kind of walk through our scripture like I normally do on a Wednesday night and uh, we'll make some applications. So you can stay seated. I just want to begin at verse 11. Follow with me through verse 14. Now, if perfection had been attainable through Levitical priesthood, all of your translations will have a little parenthetical statement. It says, for, for under it, the people receive the law. All right, now let's go back and read it without that little parenthetical statement. Uh, one more time. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. In other words, if the law was perfect, if the law did what it was supposed to do, then why did you need a Melchizedek? If Aaron and that priesthood was sufficient, if that was going to take care of your sin, if all those sacrifices, if all that was sufficient, then why do we even need to talk about a Melchizedek? He's telling, the, he's telling his audience, listen, you've got to understand what you are practicing and what you're doing is insufficient. Have you ever been out shopping and you swipe the card or, or you get the letter in the mail from your bank and insufficient funds, right? It means you did not have enough. There was not enough money to cover. It, there was not enough in your account to cover the debt that you, that you were going to be paying, that you said you were going to pay. 
So the author is telling us there has to be another priesthood that's better than Aaron because that just ain't enough. It is insufficient. Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe for which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priest. He says, now not only is there a change in the priesthood, but we have to remember, this is kind of a circular argument. You have a priesthood who's upholding a law for us to follow and obey, yet that same law outlines the priesthood. So the same law that we have, our sacrificial system, is the same law that has prescribed to us what the, what the priesthood is going to look like. So if you've got a change in the priesthood, then that automatically means there has to be a change in the law. Has there been a change in the law? It's a good question. The answer would be absolutely. Absolutely. First of all, let's talk about the Old Testament law as it was. The Old Testament law has done nothing but to show us our need for salvation. It has pointed to us the fact that we are absolute destitute sinners. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, I had, yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I, would have, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So Paul says that's what the law has been good for. It is to show me my shortcomings. So that in, in the book of Romans, he would also tell us that we are sinners. And next to God's perfect law, right, we just, we just don't measure up. That's not, so that, that's the law. So if there's going to be a change, and Melchizedek's a change, and the order after Melchizedek is a change, then what about the law? Has there been a change in the law? Let's look at a few texts in the New Testament. First of all, we need to understand that the Old Testament law has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. What we could not attain through the law, Jesus did for us. Now listen to, the book, uh, listen to this verse, uh, Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, listen, with its legal demands. He's talking about the legal demands of the law and all that it stood for and all that it, that it meant for us. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Listen to uh, verses 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, what's this whole deal about circumcision? It was the first sign of the first covenant given to set God's people apart. Do you remember Abraham? That was the sign of the covenant, that there was going to be a circumcision. It meant that I'm setting my people apart. He's saying, if you want to start at the beginning, you're going to have to keep the whole thing. But that's not what the law is all about anymore. Let's continue on in verse 4, Hebrews 
uh, excuse me, Galatians chapter 5. But you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for, for, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision counts for anything but only faith. Only faith working through love. So we have been set free. What do you mean set free? Set free in terms of the, now follow along with me, set free in terms of the salvific obligations of the law. What do I mean? It means that I was going to be keeping the law because I had faith in the promise. I had faith that Christ would come. Remember, Abraham was justified. Remember? Abraham believed. He had faith and it was, and he was justified and it was credited to him as righteousness. My obedience to the law was a reflection of my faith in God's promise to send, a, to send the Savior. And if I'm going to keep just one thing, I've got to keep it all. But Paul argues, listen, that's not the way it is anymore. Not only, listen, not only am I still asking you to have faith, but you're going to have faith in the one that has completed the law. The one that has completely fulfilled the law. So that you don't have to and you're not obligated to follow anymore. Now, does that mean that we have the right to be lawless? Does that mean that the Ten Commandments are of no use? Oh, absolutely not. Rather, what it means is that we are free to do the will of God. You see, uh, let, me, let me give you an illustration. I, I went camping uh, with uh, uh, years and years ago, the, the pastor of the church uh, where I was growing up, his family, my family went camping. They were not the outdoorsy kind of people, and you could kind of tell. They spent all their time, it was kind of funny to sit back and watch, they, fi- they would fix breakfast. Time they'd clean up from fixing breakfast, and they'd get everything from lunch, it would be lunchtime. They'd cook lunch. They had to get everything cleaned up from lunchtime, get ready for supper, then it was going to be supper time. It was like all day they were doing KP, right? They, they just didn't understand how to be a little bit more efficient. They were always working. Under the Old Testament law, if you want to keep following that, guess what you're doing? You're doing nothing but sacrifices. You were doing nothing but working, working, working. You're accomplishing nothing. Jesus came, fulfilled the law. What do I mean by fulfilled the law? Let me change metaphors and go to a different illustration. Imagine a forest fire. Imagine a big forest, property that you own, and let's say that it's just burning, eternally burning. There's just something there, and it's just burning. You, you know, it's just smoldering, and you can't use the property. You can do all that you can do, but you still can't use your property. Someone comes along and says, Mr. Uh, landowner, I have a product that when you apply it to your property here, it will smother and completely take care of the fire, completely put it out. How many of you would want it? I would. Christ came to fulfill. He took care of what was burning. So now we are free to use the property that we, have, that, that we own, that, that we are, are living on. Christ, therefore, when he fulfilled the law, says, I have fulfilled all of its obligations. Now you are free to live according to my purposes and my will. That's why when we talk and preach and we pray about God's will, following God's will, that is why it is so important. Because the cancellation of the debt of sin has made us free to serve God completely and to follow His will. 
Now do you see what he's trying to argue? They were so busy. Listen, it's, it's not that they didn't love God. It's not that they didn't want the best for themselves. But they were just trusting in what they could do. How many of you are like me? Sometimes it's just hard to sit down. You have to, I have to do something. When I, I cannot lay in bed. That's just something, it is against my nature. When I wake up, I have to get up. I cannot, I just, even like tossing, Tiffany would tell you at night, I'm tossing, I'll get up and I'll go back and watch TV or something. I can't lay there. Sometimes that type of, of living is in our, in our hearts as well, spiritually speaking, and we feel like we have to do something to feel like we're worthy of God. Jesus says, no, I, I've made you completely worthy just because of my blood. Okay? So he's, he's kind of changed. He's not changed the law in the fact that he's annulled it. He's changed it in terms of our relationship to it. All right, let's, let's keep going. And if, uh, let me go back to Hebrews, to our text, verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. You remember last week we talked about Melchizedek, who had no genealogy, no beginning of days, no ending of days. The Bible doesn't record him being born or dying, and, and certainly not the lineage. He was not, you know, he was not in that tribe, and so that's why he's being compared, and Jesus is compared to him. There's another, right? Who has become a priest, verse 16, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is where it gets really interesting because now we see this description of Melchizedek, that this, this, this idea that there is some permanence, this foreverness, I could call it. And this foreverness is going to be compared directly to Jesus. Why? Because he is forever. Always has been, always will be. The King James verse 15 uses a word that is quite interesting. It's unprofitableness. We have then through verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are this priest forever. It's, un, it's unchanging, unchanging because Christ is this priest forever. Now there is a different scope to the priesthood. You see, before it would die because the priest would die. Another priest would be raised up, that priest would die. We have an eternal priest, therefore we have an eternal priesthood. If we have an eternal priest, which means we have an eternal priesthood, that means he can never be replaced. That means there's no one else coming after him that's going to be better. There is never no one who's going to come or anything that's going to come to replace Jesus. So in other words, nobody can annul the power of Christ or this endless life. The logic is holding. Jesus Christ is a priest forever. And he brought us a better hope, and he's arguing, the writer is, saying, guys, you don't have to keep doing this. It's your choice. If you want to keep doing this. But it's useless. It's useless. Imagine going home and 
let's say tonight you go back home and everything that you have in your home that was, you know, been affected by technology, washing machine. Let's say that it was replaced with that old hand crank kind. You know what I'm talking about? And then it had the two rollers up on the side that you'd roll and you'd press out all the excess water. How many of you have ever used those? Okay. And you'd go and you'd have to go hang it out because there's no dryer. Imagine that being in your home tonight. Imagine no microwave. Imagine no refrigerator and freezer. You just have the old-timey icebox. You know what an icebox is. Okay. All of that technology. But you know that there's something better. How many of you would continue to use what is old and say, I just don't want the new? Great. Great. I, I'm, I'm glad. Why would, we, why would we want to do that with our faith as well? That's what, the, that's what the Hebrews were doing. They were hand-washing their clothes when there was something that was automatic, as it were. But they felt like they were doing something. Now, I'll be honest with you. When you work, I, listen, there's something about work that does, you know, do something to you to make you feel. I'll, I'll never forget. I, I grew up, I read an article, this, and it was a television news piece, um, a week ago, maybe, about the inhumaneness of children working on farms. Yes. Tobacco farmers, to be precise. I'm from North Carolina. We were the tobacco capital of the world. Wilson, North Carolina, up until the tobacco buyout back in the early 2000s, Wilson, North Carolina was the largest tobacco market in the United States. My wife, as a matter of fact, we were talking about it uh, uh, this afternoon after church because there, there's a, there was a huge tobacco market, a big warehouse uh, called Wainwright's Warehouse. I always think about Brother Ralph Wainwright. I always think about that big warehouse. And, and, and it was a big deal. When you were a kid, you were cropping tobacco. You, listen, you were started by July 4th. You started cropping. You started putting up barns by July 4th. We called it priming back then. That's because you had to sort out your tobacco. You had to, you had to grade it, you see. And I, and I can't believe I'm talking about this. It's being recorded in a podcast and everything. But, I, but just, just follow me. When we got done, now remember, I was young. When we got done, we were tired. When the first thing we did when we got home, we didn't even change clothes first. We had to wash our hands. The tar on our hands, was it was gunky. And we had, we had to use Ajax, and that's what we used. We'd scrub and scrub our fingers and everything. Now there's machines to do all this stuff, and like, you know, it's like any other type of work. My point is, I, I felt some type of fulfillment. Even as a kid, I felt like I had accomplished something. But I was going to have to do that again the next day. And if that, and if that farmer was going to plant tobacco the next year, I was going to have to do it over again all over again. That's great. How much better, though, is the work of the kingdom where the things that I am doing are permanent? Now do you understand why Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures in, on this earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. 
It's permanent. And he's, he's, he's doing, Luke is trying to do his best to convince the, 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 the readers here that that's the difference. You can get just as much fulfillment by working for the kingdom than you can for yourselves. So, oh, uh, and he also mentions in verse 16 this, this bodily descent. Now, now hold that thought, and now let's jump down to verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn, and he will not, he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. He says, furthermore, he says that the Levitical priesthood, they were priests just because they were born into it. They just had an obligation to do it because... It was, their family, it was their family duty. It was their job. It was their responsibility. Furthermore, they did not take an oath. In other words, they didn't have to agree to it. They just had to do it. We have a greater priest in the order of Melchizedek. He, was, he didn't do it out of an obligation. He did it because God loved us. There was a greater sense of duty. And furthermore, it came with an oath. Look at the oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He, even God says of Jesus, you, my son, are a priest forever. I'm declaring to you. Now, now, I don't want you to miss this. He says, I'm declaring to you that the work that you are doing is permanent. It sounds like to me that God is very insistent on the person and the work of his son and what it means to redemption. That's why it's sufficient. The Levitical priesthood didn't have that. It was good enough at the time. They had the backing of the law. But, but just understand, when I say it this way, Jesus had the backing of Almighty God. And says, you're going to be there forever and ever. Amen. So, verse 23, the former priests were, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utter... Oh, listen, you need to, the, 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 the key verse out of this text is going to be verse 25. You ought to underline it, highlight it if you've got something to do that with. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is an interesting verse, mainly because of the prepositions that are being used. And if I could use, I'm going to use this tissue box. I'm going to pull it out here. I, I'm just kind of, I didn't plan this, but I want you to see the picture that's being drawn here. It's all bent up. Let's get it nice and pretty. All right. Greek prepositions, just like English prepositions, tell a story of direction. Now look at verse 25 and let, let's identify the subject, the object. Let's identify all those things. And then when we look at the prepositions, you're going to see a mighty message come forth. Verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Who's the he? It's going to be our high priest, Jesus Christ. Save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. John 14, Jesus declares that no one can come to the Father except through Jesus. Let's imagine that this box here, just for the sake of my illustration, this is Jesus. This box here. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. To is a, is a direct, is a preposition that points you to something. Okay? He's able to save to the uttermost. Okay, so we're already at Christ. Those who draw near to God, how? Through. Through. Now, this is important because when Paul argues the idea of our relationship to Christ, that we are in him, when this sinks into your life, I promise you it changes you forever. I know we talk about the whole coming into your, Jesus coming into our hearts and stuff like that. That is true. However, there is more said, and it has to do with the issue of righteousness, that we are in Christ. You don't get to be in Christ unless you're going through. You follow me? We're in. But when we come through that manner, we draw near to God. That's the only way that it works. Now, look at this picture he's trying to to verbally uh, write out for for them. This is the best high priest. Because what he has done, you're going, drawing closer to God through his work. You are, listen, it's almost like when you go through, you're covering yourself. That makes sense. Because what is God seeing when he looks at us? He doesn't look at our sin for justification. What is he looking at? What has been imputed to us? The righteousness of Christ. How then is he able to see it or how can he not see it? Listen, if we're in him, he's going to see it. Because we are covered. We sing a song. Are you washed in the blood? In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? You don't get that unless you're covered. And you don't get covered unless you're in And you don't get through unless you go in. He has established for us that the the great authority of the priesthood of Christ, it stands firm and it stands forever. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he... Now listen, there's another verse. Or underline that phrase at least. For his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. You say, well, pastor, I thought Jesus was sinless. He was. Why is he telling me that he was offering up his sin? He became sin who knew no sin. When he put on that robe of flesh, that robe of flesh was as as sin-stained as you could possibly possibly be. He didn't affect his deity because he was God. But he put on that robe of flesh to be the son of man. And that's what he sacrificed on the tree. On Calvary. Verse 28, for the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests. The word of the oath, which came later than the law, 
appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. Now, what do we do with a text like this? Let me give you three, uh, three questions. Uh, I believe they're questions. Yes, they're questions. Three questions I want you to consider about your righteousness. I mean, what do you see and how do you view your righteousness and the things that you are doing either for yourself or for the kingdom? Question number one, what failing laws do I live by? What failing laws do I live by? What do I mean is this. How many of you just pin yourself up in isolation? You just feel like, the, I just want to be alone. I, I just, I can't be around other people. I, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, being shy or whatever, but I'm talking about the, li- the, the life that you live with, with our brothers and sisters in Christ are you more isolated? You try to be a part, you just don't... One truly is the loneliest number, as the song says. But perhaps that may be the source of your struggle. You have no one else that you've ever confided in. You have no one else that you have trust in. There's no one else that... We're, we're all family here. We're, you know, you, you've been around the block a time or two with this church. I think one of the greatest things that still bothers me about what y'all have been through in your recent history is the damage that was done to personal relationships. Because we were not, Christ did not die for the church for the church to be living in isolation from one another. We were made for relationships. And listen, there's no reason why we struggle in that area. How many of you have ever been burned by friendship? Yeah. But that's a failing law. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to feel comfortable enough to air out all your dirty laundry with everyone here. I don't even know. That's, that's not what we need to do. But it is a failing law to think that you can just keep, continue to live by yourself in isolation and to think that you're going to be okay. Uh, what about laws of, of moralism? Oh, boy, now this is a big one. What about thinking that, well, I'm good enough? This is a law that is going to damn more people in northeast Florida and southeast Georgia than anything else I know of. The fact that people keep thinking that they're good enough. That they don't need the church, they don't need Jesus, they don't need, they're good enough. I have a problem with people who say they've got all of Jesus, but they don't want church. You don't get a husband unless you're going to be, unless you're willing to be the bride. I believe it was Spurgeon who once said if, your faith can't get, you to have, uh, can't get you to church. I don't know if it's going to get you to heaven. What about laws of justification? The things that you say, the things that you do to try to pass the blame, pass the buck. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. Somebody else's fault. What about the... Uh, well, there's other kinds of laws. What kind of failing laws do you live by? Remember, Christ fulfilled every law Perfect, or or rather the the law of Moses, but listen, 
he, he's fulfilled and overcome all of those imperfect things that I try to live by. He's greater than all of those. Second question, what's my Judaism? What's my Judaism? Here's what I mean. The Hebrews, the audience of this letter, when Christ wasn't good enough, when they were struggling, they turned to Judaism. They turned to their homegrown faith. I could illustrate it like when I think of church, one of the first images that ever comes into my mind when I think of church is the church I grew up in, the church that I became first familiarized with. That's what I think of. The Jews turned back to the first practice and model of religion that they became familiar with. My question to you is when Jesus isn't enough for your life, what are you turning to? You may be turning to reason and logic. Now, I believe there is a great place in the church for thinking Christians. I encourage thinking. I really do. Not like I talked about this morning where we, where we use it to, to compromise, but I'm talking about getting into the Word of God and thinking about what the Lord has said to us. Engaging with your mind. But do you turn to reason and logic as a way to justify things? Maybe you turn to tradition. My grandma did it. My grandpa did it. My whatever did it. How is that going to work out for you? I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about dishonoring their memory. There, there's some things regarding the memory of my grandfather and my grandmothers yeah, that I will always cherish and I will always honor some things, many things about them. But I have to remember that my grandparents were sinners. Not everything that they did was perfect and in accordance with the love of God. I can't go with tradition all the time. Sometimes that may be our Judaism. It may be the thing that we turn to. What, what about our hatred? We may turn to a Judaism of hatred. Uh, you have preached law to me and I reject it. You've preached a, you, you have preached something to me that's convicted me of sin or you've convicted me of something, therefore I... No way. And then if there is a Judaism of hatred, there automatically comes with it a Judaism of judgment. You're going to do something about it. I don't know if you remember, but right when I first got here, I preached about a peacemaking church on Sunday nights. And I said, there are two options that you do. When you encounter a conflict, you either run or you fight. In both, in both instances, there's a judgment going on. How, how are you going to respond? So what are the failing laws that you live by? What is the Judaism that you're turning to? If you're turning to that judgment where you're pronouncing a judgment on someone and, and then you react accordingly, how is that going to help you? Then last, last question, what do I really trust? Now, now think about this. I, I want you to think about this question long and hard. And this is how we're actually going to end tonight with just a question. This last one. What do I really trust? 
Sometimes it's easier for me to tell you what I don't trust. Number one, I don't trust me. I don't, because I just know who Chris Woodard is. And I know who you are. You don't need to trust you either. Okay? I don't trust in my abilities. I told my wife tonight, I was scared to death to preach this message. I, I, I was not prepared. Still, I just don't feel prepared. I was scared to death. I don't trust my intellect. I don't trust my judgment. I don't trust my ability to prepare sometimes. I mean, I can identify things that I don't, I don't, I don't trust in my ability to be an awesome parent or an awesome husband. I just have a great realization of the power and the impact of what sin can do. Not that I'm under its, in, its power, like I used to be, but I also know that Satan's relentless. And he knows where my weak spots are. And just as sure as I can, as I, as I can uh, shore up something and make it strong, he's going to find another weakness. So what do I really trust? Here's what I trust. I trust that Jesus Christ is all that I have ever needed or ever will need, period. It just did. I furthermore trust that everything that he said regarding my life is firm, this morning in our Membership Matters class, we're on session number two. I talked about the, the great uh, conservative resurgence in Southern Baptist and, 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 uh, when we, and that uh, uh, conservative resurgence, the, the battle was only on one thing, the inerrancy of Scripture. I just want to make sure you know. Don't even argue with me because you're going to be a fool. The Bible, this is the Word of God. There is no mixture of any error contained within. Where it speaks and what it says, what it commands, I have to do. What it blesses, I'm going to bless, and what it damns, I'm going to damn. The word is final. It makes me awfully uncomfortable. Sometimes the word kind of gets me angry a little bit. Especially when you're a pastor. Lord, I really got to do this. It's part of my job, yes. It's part of my calling. It's something I agreed to do. When I surrendered to the Lord, it meant everything. My great concern is how much we trust. How much of this word is truly sufficient for our lives? Went to the gas pump on the way over here and had to get some gas. And I didn't fill it up. No one in here can afford to fill up their gas tanks anymore, right? You know? I just put it in as I, as I need it, right? You're probably kind of doing the same thing. But that's only for my gas tank. When I signed up for Jesus, I couldn't just get $20 worth or $40 worth. I couldn't just get half a tank. It had to be all or nothing. The reason why it has to be all or nothing is because he is all or nothing. Everything else just doesn't measure up. 
and I've spoken this tonight, and I realize my audience, number one, you're here on a Sunday night. Number two, you're here on a Sunday night on a Memorial Day weekend. I don't know, but I think that ought to earn a medal and, and, some, and, some, and some, you know, some bling on your, on your uh, you know, on your crowns in heaven, you know. You know, I think the Lord kind of says, yeah, Memorial Day weekend, Sunday night, you guys are awesome. I realize who I'm preaching to. You're like the cream of the crop. But I also know you're just like me because you struggle with these things too. I struggle sometimes. I know it's sufficient, but I struggle with that sufficiency sometimes. Because it puts me and it can put us all in some uncomfortable situations. Because we have decisions to make. And it's at that moment, it's at that precise moment that we're going to reveal ourselves to the Lord and everyone else. Are we going to compromise? Or are we going to be completely obedient? Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you that not only have you explained in your word, but you have explained in such dramatic sufficiency that we are left with, with not much to, to do with. I mean, we are either found observing and honoring and obeying or, or we're just found without. And it, and it doesn't take um, gross and, and, and great negligence. Lord, it's, it's just a matter of that simple area like we looked at this morning where we think we've done right, but Lord, we've not. We've not done right. We think we're obedient, but we're completely disobedient. So, Lord, I I ask the questions to us once again. What are our failing laws? Father, what what are the things that we turn to? What's our Judaism? Father, what are the things that I really trust in my life? Tonight, in our response, Lord, there may be a need for some to come to this altar to pray, to seek forgiveness, to seek uh, just the, the, the pastor and we pray together over a matter or Maybe just to be right in their pew and to kneel, to sit, right where they stand, to do business with you. But Father, let us think about those questions and how we measure up. Father, let us truly know and remember how greatly sufficient you are to us and for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.